Blog Talk Radio. I am here to inform you, in case you didn't know, standing on your friends but not telling you, but you would know that I was dead. My name is Jesse the Jack. Hammer, 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 and I will rock. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jesse the Jackhammer, professional wrestler, local actor from West Virginia. This is another episode of the Mitchell Family Reality Show. Happy Columbus Day to everybody out there, to all our listeners out there in the United States, cross seas, cross oceans, wherever you are. Good morning, good evening. Good afternoon! So, I am glad you all are here. So, today we are going to tell you the story. We are not. A&E is going to tell you the true story about Christopher Columbus, how his life went, how his life started, and what he did in his life and where he went in his life. So, I want to wish everybody out there, all wrestling fans, all our fans that are listening to the radio show of the Mitchell Family Reality Show, <clears throat> all our friends and family, great friends, great grandmothers, great whatever you are, whoever you are to us, or if you're even cl- a close friend or close fan, happy Columbus Day to everybody out there like us, for me and my family. So, ladies and gentlemen, for, for further ado, we're going to go ahead and play this. Of Christopher Columbus. So you would know about Christopher Columbus. So here we go. You enjoy the show, ladies and gentlemen, and I'll be back before it ends. Or I'll try to. If I don't, enjoy the show and thanks for listening. Columbus wasn't trying to discover a new world. Finding the Americas was an accident, but that accidental discovery changed the shape of the world. When he set off across the Atlantic, he was hoping to find a new way to China by sailing west. Well, he was never able to fulfill that dream, but in trying, he brought the old world into a collision course with the new. And for good or bad, changed them both forever. He is the founder of our own time. Before Columbus, the world was very different than after Columbus. He had an impact that was as transforming as uh, the first uh, American astronauts that arrived on the moon. The calculation behind Columbus's first voyage was that there was a single ocean separating Europe from China. And there was no intermediate continent. Nobody knew there was a landmass in between. 
he was very much involved in the cruel treatment to the Indians. He was a brilliant leader on sea, but he did nothing different from what any other explorer did um, or what any other man looking for glory and fame and riches for oneself. I do believe he was obsessed and believed that there was a divine providence operating and had chosen him and saw himself as an instrument of God operating under the Spanish crown to do this. In the year 1451, there was no better birthplace for a future sailor than the great Italian port of Genoa. Genoa was a seafaring city and young men uh, served on the ships that went all over the Mediterranean. They went as far as uh, the British Isles. And Columbus, we know from his own writings, was uh, a mariner from the beginning of his working life, really. Genoa had built a trading empire throughout the known world. But one place had been put off limits, the Kingdom of China. Europeans were fascinated by Marco Polo's stories of China's fabulous wealth and splendor, and Europe prized its silk, gold, and spices. But the land route to Asia, the so-called East Indies, had been cut off by the Muslim conquest of Constantinople. To find a way around the blockade would become the driving passion of Genoa's most famous son. For Cristoforo Colombo, life began humbly. He was the first of five children in a modest family. His father is involved in various jobs, but he's principally a weaver also probably a tavern keeper. They are lower middle class, I think you would call them. Columbus was helping his father in his trade, helping him in the purchase of wine, helping him to run his tavern. And Columbus becomes also a weaver of wool. But in a city so linked to the ocean, Columbus soon tired of work on land and went to sea at the age of 14 on merchant ships. Columbus was a, a dreamy boy, uh, and the, the logistics of, of his seaport town allowed him to sit upon the rocks and overlook the sea and imagine where sailing would take him and what lay beyond this. He went to sea as a kid, and he learned that way, the hard way, the trial and error. He became probably one of the best dead reckoning, that's where you use a compass, one of the best, best dead reckoning sailors that ever walked the planet. We have the testimony of a number of other persons, including Michele Di Cunio. He says, since Genoa was Genoa, there's never been a better sailor. He can foretell what storms will come and how best to handle the winds. Columbus might have remained a merchant seaman, but when he was 25, fate intervened. He was shipwrecked off Portugal during a pirate attack. As the 
ship went down, uh, Columbus managed to escape. The story is that he, with the help of an oar, was able to swim to safety some six miles. Upon landing in Portugal, Columbus suddenly found himself among the world leaders in ocean exploration. The Portuguese had the best sailors, the best navigators, were doing more voyaging than anybody at that time during the late 1470s, early 1480s. Instead of following just the coastline, which is what they'd done up to that point, they began to experiment with and achieve an understanding of oceanic navigation, of the wind systems and the current systems out in the Atlantic itself. Columbus began sailing with them to Iceland, Britain, and Africa. But no ships ventured very far west because the Atlantic was called the Sea of Darkness, unknown and violent. For Columbus, though, that attitude would change radically. He had married a Portuguese nobleman's daughter and through her had gained access to the work of the geographer Toscanelli, who claimed that the Atlantic was in fact the quick way to China. Somewhere he gets this Toscanelli letter who says in so many words that it's a very short trip across the Western Ocean to get to Asia. So he really believed that there was no Pacific. Columbus saw this as the key with which he could reopen the closed door to China. So with the stories of Marco Polo, and the dream that he was spinning in his head, he began to seek more uh, writings of the ancient cosmographers and astronomers. The idea of sailing west was logical because it had been known for centuries that the Earth was round. This was no big deal. Everybody knew you could do it if you didn't starve to death on ground. I mean, the Earth was round to anybody that knew anything about the Earth. Ironically, Northern Europeans, the Vikings, had already made it to the Americas, but no one fully realized what this meant. Fishing was going on in the Newfoundland banks, certainly before Columbus discovered America. But I don't think these people understood that this was a new continent. I, I believe they simply uh, saw these as islands or peninsulas. Geographers in the 1480s believed correctly that Asia lay a huge distance to the west. But now Columbus, via Toscanelli, was saying it was really quite close. By thinking the Earth was 20% smaller than it was, he had a screwy idea of the size of the Earth. He was wrong. And had he been right, nobody would have gone with him, and he probably wouldn't have done it either. Columbus began searching for someone to back his enterprise of the Indies. Columbus was prepared to sell his idea to anyone and any place. He just wanted his backing. He wanted to prove that he could make his idea work. The kernel, the seed, grew to such a point that it became an obsession with him. Columbus took his idea to Portugal's King John, who dismissed him, but then stole the idea and sent his own ships west. 
The double cross failed when storms drove the ships back home. Frustrated, Columbus took his idea across the border to Spain in 1485. Now by this time, he had been married and had a son. The wife had died, so he went with his little son Diego to Spain, the man with the dream and the little boy in hand. He was given encouragement at the monastery. It was arranged for the son to stay there and to be schooled and, and cared for. And when Columbus was then uh, about to embark on finding the king and queen of Spain. In talking with the monks, Columbus had become even more convinced of his destiny. His own growing feeling that uh, this was God-given, this was directed by the deity and the Holy Spirit moved him. Christopher Columbus detaches himself from the world of making a living and becomes the person who is going to follow this, this dream, no matter what, until he succeeds. Once in Spain, it took Columbus about a year to win his first audience with King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella in 1486. I'm sure he was treated like anybody pounding on the door with a crazy idea, but for some reason Isabella didn't think so. She seemed to be absolutely enraptured with Columbus. Now, this is not the first time in history this has happened. There have been all sorts of characters passed through royal courts that caught the fancy of especially some queen. But despite Isabella's interest, the court was too busy to think about Columbus's proposal. Spain was fighting to expel the Muslim Moors, who had occupied the country for seven centuries. But to encourage Columbus, Isabella granted him a small allowance to stay close by. Columbus was now raising a second son. The mother was a Spanish farmer's daughter whom he would never marry. Columbus survived by selling books and kept pestering the court for seven full years. Very stubborn and persistent. At one time, Columbus said, uh, I plow on no matter how the winds might shake me. And he had to do that because he was following the court around, really almost like uh, a beggar trying to sell his project. Columbus was no favorite of the court's learned men. The royal astronomers and the cosmographers, and they said, look, this is how big the Earth is. The Earth had been measured for years. And here comes a guy that said, you're all wrong. Everybody's wrong. You're 20% off. It's, it's 20,000 miles around, not 25,000 miles. And uh, believe me, well, obviously the royal commissioner turned him down. He was wrong. But Columbus was able to keep his case before the court through sheer personality. He is a, a good talker, even though his Spanish is not his language. His enthusiasm could break through the bounds of language. He was a very persuasive, he would have made a good salesman in today's world. The turning point came when the Moors were finally defeated by the Spanish armies in early 1492. 
Now the king and queen were ready to consider the Italian's proposal. It offered a way of catching up with their neighboring rival power, the Portuguese. The Portuguese were making all these discoveries. They were bringing back gold and slaves and tropical products and acquiring an empire and wealth was flowing in from the empire and um, Spain was not really getting anything. He promised everything that he himself wanted. Riches from the fabled East Indies, glory and fame for Spain, and the possibility of converting other peoples from other lands to become Christians. When the king and queen expressed interest, Columbus demanded that he be made admiral of the ocean sea, viceroy of all new lands, and be given 10% of the treasure. The royals were outraged, but finally agreed. After seven years, Columbus had won. The queen said, well, what do we got to lose? Maybe he's right. And maybe that's why she did it. If he finds something, all good. If he sails off into the sunset, we never see him again. So what have we lost? Columbus would sail into the Atlantic with 90 men and three ships, the Santa Maria, the Nina, and the Pinta, each one less than 80 feet long. They were extremely small. It was amazing to think how 40 men could have managed on the Santa Maria. Uh, they could not all sleep at the same time. They had to sleep at shifts. Why were the ships so small? Why were there so few of them? This was a scouting voyage. There was no point in sending a whole armada of big ships because you didn't know what you were going to find. On August the 3rd, 1492, Columbus set sail from the Spanish port of Palos with the vast Atlantic before him. A voyage literally into the unknown. Where there were superstitions of boiling seas, there were fears of sea monsters. And Columbus himself believed that at the end of the earth are strange wild men with corrupt faces, half beasts and half men. Yet Columbus was supremely confident, telling his men they'd soon see China and Japan and come home safely. He had figured out that there was a wind system, a circular wind system in the Atlantic, which would take him out westwards and then bring him back to Europe afterwards. And so what he did was to follow a, essentially a great circle system of navigation. To follow it and make use of it is a brilliant piece of navigation. The days stretched desperately into weeks and months with no sign of land. The seamen became more and more frightened. Uh, it was natural. Columbus wouldn't allow this. There was no way that Columbus would turn back. Not with all the weeping and begging and threats. He had planned this. This was his life's work. There was no way that he would turn back. The men refused to go on. Their murmurs were in vain. My determination is unshakable. Columbus Log, October 10th. 
there was no way back. And Columbus kept saying, I know how to get back, but I'm not telling you. I think the crew realized this guy, we can't throw him overboard. He's the only one that knows the route home. Columbus pleaded, promising the crew wealth, fame, and land any day. Well, we're near land. You always get this when you're near land. Land's, we'll see it tomorrow. Every day, tomorrow. Columbus was the greatest next day guy that ever lived. One more day, just give it one more day. October 11th, everything changed. There was something in the air. There were no more grumblings anymore. There was a little thorn bush on the sea. There was a little stick that looked as if it had been carved. And they all knew that they were near land. The king and queen had promised a handsome reward to the first sailor to sight land. One of the lookouts on Columbus's ship was the first person to sight land. Uh, by moonlight on the morning of October the 12th, 1492, Columbus himself later claimed the credit for this, which is a rather um, tawdry affair, but uh, he claimed the credit for it and also claimed the reward. For the crew, two months of despair at sea now turned into wild anticipation. The night before in the ship, there was a wait of some three hours from 2 a.m. until 5 a.m. when light would break. These were momentous hours, and the sailors fell to their knees and wept uh, tears of joy and relief. At daybreak, Columbus ordered the playing of holy music and strode ashore onto the New World. It was an island in the Bahamas, exactly which one is still uncertain. The men got off the ships onto this island, put a flag in the land, and proclaimed this as a possession of Spain in the name of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. He must have, in that short time, had a tremendous vision of glory and riches for the rest of his life. There was such a build-up to this. Columbus, when he first sighted land and set foot on land, probably thought that he was in an archipelago off the eastern coast of China. Columbus, I think, from the beginning, thought he was in Asia and that uh, the lands of the Emperor of China were just over the horizon, or they were just beyond the next range of islands, or just over the next mountain range in Cuba. But while Columbus was expecting to find the Emperor of China, what he found instead were Native Americans. He was astonished and amazed to find people that he saw naked as their mothers bore them. That was the quote. When he expected to find people in beautiful, lavish, wealthy costumes with buildings of gold glistening in the sun. The Indians themselves were just as amazed. The Indians, when they first saw these people, it was a wonder. It was totally new that had never ever existed before these large ships these people who wore clothing uh, 
dogs and horses and things like that made an immense impact. They believe I am descended from heaven. They bring us food and drink with extraordinary goodwill. Columbus Letter, March 1493. I, at first, they probably thought they were straight out of heaven, immortals, down from Olympus or something like that. They probably viewed the Spaniard as, as something supernatural, almost like a UFO landing. Uh, total awe. We know that the Spanish were absolutely overwhelmed by the beauty of their cotton. But they looked down on the Indians because they had no iron, they had no ability to defend themselves in warfare, and they were easily conquered. Once Columbus had landed in the Caribbean, he was delighted to find that the Indians were not only happy to trade, but that they would swap gold for bells and beads. He's aware of the fact that the Indians are generous, that if you look at anything that you like, they will give it to you, and they have no special regard for gold. A gold object is just as, they're just as happy to give that away as, as anything else. Columbus quickly let them know where his main interest lay. Right off the bat, I think the first thing he asked, where's the gold? Where'd you get that gold that you're wearing? Uh, there's no doubt about it that gold was on his mind. He had to prove that there was wealth there to justify uh, himself to Ferdinand and Isabella. He had to bring back gold, he had to bring back spices. Columbus forced some natives to board his ships to lead him to the gold mines of China and Japan. His search took him to an island he called Española, which is now Haiti and the Dominican Republic. There, the Santa Maria hit a reef and sank. The Indians came to his rescue. They helped them salvage whatever could be salvaged from the Santa Maria. They helped bring the stuff ashore. They were deeply affected by Columbus's loss. Uh, relations were very friendly indeed, and Columbus thought that this would be a good opportunity to set up a permanent settlement. With only two ships remaining for the voyage home, Columbus left 39 men behind on Española. They would continue to search for gold with Indian help. You have a brief honeymoon where they just find each other wonderful. The crew are given Indian women and anything that they want, all the food they want. The first big misunderstanding that the Spanish have is this generosity. The Indians give away their wives, they give away these things, but they expect them back. We get the term Indian giver from this. Meanwhile, in Spain, Columbus arrived home in March 1493. He entered as a conquering hero, displaying his booty of Indians and gold. He travels triumphantly across Spain to the court, which was then at Barcelona, and gives his report. Of course, he's immediately famous, he becomes a great hero, and the Spanish king and queen then have to decide how to exploit this great possibility that has come their way. So immediately they take their great heroic Captain Columbus and they put him in charge of a new voyage, which will be a voyage of colonization. 
they were impressed enough to set up a second voyage that was really a, a magnificent voyage. I mean, 17 ships and 12 to 1,500 people, and it was quite an operation. His idea was to establish a colony, bring colonists, settlers, plants and animals. He brought horses with him and pigs. There seemed to have been no shortage of people who wanted to uh, join the voyage. They were attracted by Columbus's very exaggerated reports of the riches of the Indies. A lot of them apparently thought that all they would have to do is get over there and the natives would then pour gold into their laps and make them rich. The second fleet left in September 1493 with huge expectations. Columbus was anxious to return to Española to see whether the little colony he'd left behind had resulted in a windfall of gold and spices. But what he found was that the colony had become a killing field. There was increasing friction over the Spaniards wanting food, over their treatment of the women, over their demand for gold, and finally they were all killed, probably massacred by the uh, infuriated indigenous people. And that unfortunately sets the tone for all the later interaction between the uh, Spaniards and the indigenous inhabitants of the, the West Indies. From this point on, the Indians became little more than slaves. Every Indian over 14 years old was forced to mine for gold. Daily quotas were put upon them, but what made the situation even worse was that there simply was not enough gold available for these quotas or anything near it to be fulfilled. They're taken from their total freedom and they're forced to, to, to get gold, which is a meaningless substance for them, out of the ground to, to, to give to these people and they're forced and they're beaten and, and they're exploited. The Indians simply, when they, were, when they were caught up in this, they lost the will to live. They could not picture the world that the Spanish uh, imagined. But it's a world Columbus had imagined from the start. The first day he encounters the Indians, he talks about what beautiful bills they are and what good slaves they're going to make. He takes Indians who come to him to trade and he captures them and he keeps them. Columbus was a man of his times. Columbus, like the settlers, was there to make money. He was not too particular about the ways that he chose to make money, because that's the way people behaved. There was a flourishing slave trade in Europe in the Middle Ages. Uh, slavery was a customary part of European society. It didn't seem in any way unnatural for Columbus or the other settlers to, to do this. One of the chiefs has a vision when he takes this drug, Cohobe, in which he sees that a clothed people will come and destroy the Indians, and that after he dies, his people won't live long, that they will die in, in starvation and in slavery. Columbus had led Spanish settlers to believe they would become rich with the easy gold. As those hopes fell, so did Columbus's reputation. 
The Spanish colonists on Hispaniola uh, were the victims of their exaggerated expectations. Gold didn't turn out to be as abundant by any means as Columbus had said. The food was in short supply. Everybody was sick. The Indians were dying of meals and smallpox, which were introduced undoubtedly without any evil intent. But they swapped syphilis for this, which was a good trade, and so the Spaniards were dying too. A lot of the colonists died. A lot of the colonists very quickly became disgusted and returned home on the ships that departed and went back to Spain. The first colony was by no means a success. And a lot of the resentment later on, of course, crystallized around Columbus himself. Columbus's own frustration was growing too. He was still exploring the Caribbean in search of the Chinese emperor. To silence doubters, he made his crew swear under threat of losing their tongues that they were in Asia. He would not think of anything else. It was impossible. And when any discussion of this nature came up, uh, he refused to believe it, and he insisted that everyone else think the same. This is an act of a desperate man. Depressed and with revolts brewing, Columbus returned to Spain in early 1496. His homecoming this time was very different. Not as a conquering hero. He didn't find the route to the Indian Ocean. He uh, saw the Indian mistreated. He didn't discover the great amounts of gold that he thought he would. Isabella and Ferdinand were persuaded to grant a third voyage, but this time it took Columbus two years to raise a fleet. By the third voyage, they were having a hard time getting crew. This guy was crazy. Uh, everybody died. There was nothing there. Everybody was sick. Uh, there was no gold. You weren't going to get rich if you went over there. There were no cities paved with gold. When Columbus set off for the third time in 1498, his crew included 10 men convicted of murder. There were so few volunteer sailors that the Crown had to offer amnesty to prisoners. On this voyage, Columbus headed further south and for the first time hit continental America in modern-day Venezuela. When he saw the huge Orinoco River, he believed he'd found the Garden of Eden. He says, I am convinced it's the seat of paradise. And he writes to the king that he now believes the earth is shaped like a ball, but one end of it has almost like a pear with a stem, and that would be where the Garden of Paradise was. And from that height, the water would flow down explaining the Orinoco. But he couldn't stay in paradise. He had to return to Española, where he'd left his brother Bartholomew in charge. The settlers were now in full-scale revolt against the Columbus family. Columbus was a brilliant navigator and brilliant seaman, but he was not a good administrator, and he didn't know how to run a lot of these rather roughneck colonists that uh, found their way out to the, the West Indies. Columbus had ordered that the spoils of conquest belonged to the crown, 
He, of course, was working on 10% commission. The settlers, though, were taking all the gold and slaves they could find. Columbus ordered several hangings, but the anarchy continued. Finally, the Crown decided that something had to be done, that a strong official was needed to go out there, bang heads together, get people to stop fighting one another, and uh, take charge. In 1500, the court sent a royal officer, Francisco Bobadilla, to investigate. As he sailed into Española, he was greeted by the sight of rebels hanging from the trees. Horrified to see an Italian executing Spanish citizens, Bobadilla ordered that Columbus be put in chains and sent back to Spain. He sent home essentially in disgrace. Once he was on board the ship heading back to Spain, the captain there said, of course, you can take your chains off. Uh, there's no need for them here. Columbus said, no, I will continue to wear my chains. He wore them by choice as a sign of, shall we say, almost martyrdom to dramatize his case. If I had stolen India and given it to the Moors, Spain could not have shown me greater enmity. Columbus, November 1500. This was the low point. He had sunk in health and sunk in spirits as low as any man could get. He had arthritis. He had temporary periods of blindness. He had gout. He felt cursed. He couldn't believe that how could God have done this to him. Isabella immediately freed Columbus, but he was clearly out of favor now. He went into retreat, living with monks, and wrote of his divine destiny. He writes the Pope, Pope Pius II, and uh, says, the time between now and the end of the world is shortening. We must move to convert the heathen of the isles of all of the oceans to Christianity. By now, Columbus had passed 50 and was a very sick man. But he continued to press the court for a fourth voyage, promising to find a passage to China, which lay somewhere beyond this new continental paradise. In his mind, he saw South America as a continent. No doubt about it, he saw it as a continent. South of Asia. Central America was the Malay Peninsula. And if you could go around it, you could sail into the Indian Ocean. Reluctantly, the Crown agreed to a fourth and final voyage in 1502. He was granted this last wish, this man who was adrift in his dreams, that he was given this fourth voyage so that the, the king and queen would be rid of him already, and they gave him four ships that were in very poor condition, and perhaps just thought he would disappear. Columbus's rotting ships barely made it across the Atlantic on the fourth voyage. And when he finally neared Española, there was new trouble. It was hurricane season. The air was heavy. There was a crimson sunset. He saw the sea mammals um, staying very 
close to the surface. Uh, he knew a hurricane was imminent. Columbus asked the governor for permission to dock at Española, but it was denied. Even Job himself would have been ready to die of despair in my situation. Columbus Log, July 1502. At that same time, a Spanish fleet under Bobadilla was about to leave Española for Spain. Columbus warned them not to sail, but they ignored him. This prediction of the hurricane is another indication of Columbus's great skill as a mariner and as a man who could read the signs of the sea and knew how to take appropriate action. He said, do not sail. They sailed regardless and they paid the price. Bobadilla's ships and crew and Bobadilla himself were lost in the storm. Columbus's ships, carefully anchored, survived. They sailed on to Central America, still looking for the passage to mainland Asia. We attempted to sail to mainland, which would have been the first mainland settlement. We attempted that in Panama. That failed. They had trouble with the Indians. They had trouble with the storm. They had all kinds of trouble. Their ships were rotting out from under them. The ships limped into Jamaica, where they finally broke up. Columbus and his crew were marooned and dependent on the natives for food. The Indians were willing to supply them with food. From June until close to December, they were prepared to give them food, and then they stopped. They didn't want to supply them anymore. With his hungry crew rebelling, Columbus produced some magic. Knowing that a lunar eclipse was due, he told the Indians they must feed him, or he'd take away the moon. This is a sign from the gods that you should continue to support us and help us. And the eclipse comes right on time. Everybody is impressed, and they say, oh yes, clearly the gods are on the side of these people. We should continue to feed them. Columbus sent several crew and Indians by canoe to Hispaniola, more than a hundred miles away, to ask for a rescue boat. But the officials there ignored him. To the Spanish, he was now irrelevant. What difference would it make a foreigner who may have a number of years ago found this land? What they were interested in was the here and now. A rescue ship was eventually sent, 12 months after Columbus was marooned. In September 1504, he sailed to Spain for the last time as a passenger. I can never think of Española without tears. Columbus Log, September 1504. Chris was in very bad physical shape. He was hallucinating. He. Uh... He was really out of his mind. He was rambling and uh, incoherent and unconscious sometimes. After the last voyage, Columbus returned a defeated man, but mystified. And after having so long convinced himself that God was on his side and that the divine providence had chosen him for this, he could not make sense of what had happened. Within months, Queen Isabella died, 
and with her went his last supporter. Ferdinand gave Columbus some gold for his efforts, but withdrew the titles he'd promised. In Columbus's later years, he was somewhat bitter, somewhat disillusioned, somewhat disappointed. He felt that the Spanish crown had not treated him as well as they should have. Columbus sequestered himself in his house. He was too ill to go outside. And much of the time, he was delirious. Beside him, he kept the chains he'd once worn. He asked to be buried with the chains, the chains that had imprisoned him on the ship as he returned from the third voyage. And that request was honored him. A morbid request of a martyr. Few were there to mourn in the town of Valladolid on May the 20th, 1506, when the Italian weaver, who'd become the Admiral of Spain, died at the age of 55. He'd received little public credit 